Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. When are you going to take this war seriously, Mr. Anderson? Now, let me tell you something, Johnson, before you get on my wrong side. My corn I take serious because it's my corn. And my potatoes and my tomatoes and fences I take note of because they're mine. But this war is not mine, and I take no note of it. So, can you give me one good reason why I should send my family that took me a lifetime to raise down that road like a bunch of damn fools to do somebody else's fighting? Virginia needs all of her sons, Mr. Anderson. That might be so, Johnson, but these are my sons. They don't belong to the state. When they were babies, I never saw the state coming around with a spare tit. We never asked anything of the state and never expected anything. We do our own living, and thanks to no man for the right. CJ here. Welcome to episode 136 of the Dangerous History Podcast, Shenandoah, a Dangerous History movie review. What you just heard before the music was the late Jimmy Stewart delivering some of the best lines from this film, which is the subject of today's episode. In upcoming weeks and months, I'm going to be reviewing several different Civil War-related movies, and some of these reviews may be Patreon bonus episodes, and some of them, like today's, are going to be regular DHP episodes. Obviously, Dangerous History movie reviews of Civil War movies is closely tied in to our current Not-So-Civil War series, but I'm not officially counting them as part of that series, so they're related to, but not part of, so... So my next episode after this one will actually be, I believe, part six of the Not-So-Civil War series. I know it's been a while since the last episode, almost two weeks, and it's really been a tough last few weeks for me. I've really been struggling on a variety of fronts, uh, been very stressed and exhausted and not doing well in a lot of ways. And basically, it's just a lot of stuff from many different aspects of life have been piling on over the last several weeks for me. And just to mention a few, I don't want to bore you too long with my problems because I'm sure, you know, you all have your own problems and everybody goes through tough times. But first off, my older child got braces and she definitely needs them. But I discovered that my dental insurance covers absolutely zero for orthodontics. So that was really helpful. It's dental insurance that normally is pretty good when it comes to covering a lot of like cleanings and fillings and basic stuff, but nothing for orthodontics. And I didn't even know this until I was in the orthodontist office and my kid really does need braces and there's nothing else I can do. So basically I have almost the equivalent of a car payment every month I have to pay for my kid's braces. 
So, you know, whatever, I can juggle the budget around and, and figure that out. But then, you know, if that was the only thing, no big deal. But then there's been work shit that I'm not going to get into here, but nothing catastrophic, but just annoying things having to do with work the last few weeks. Then my wife's vehicle last week had major issues and I had to drop about 1300 bucks to keep her vehicle on the road. And again, this is not even everything that's been piling on me the last few weeks, but, um, just a few of the high or low lights. And then on top of all of this stuff and things I'm not even mentioning here, then last weekend, my grandmother died. So it's one of those, you know, when it rains, it pours kind of situations and any one of these things, and obviously some of them are worse than others, but any one of these things by itself would, would, you know, not be good, but when everything piles on all at once, it tends to make things bad. And so I've been stressed out. I've been depleted of time, money, energy, sleep, all these things together. And then that has tended to trigger something I've dealt with off and on for much of my life, which is depression. And so I'm trying not to let it get completely triggered by all this stuff, but it's been tough. It's been tough. And I've been trying to have the time and energy as much as I can with all this and other things going on to work on DHP episodes as much as I can, but I just simply have not been productive as much as I normally would be for the last few weeks, which honestly only makes me even more annoyed and stressed and depressed because I really love working on DHP episodes. I really love making this podcast. And when all these other, you know, negative things of various different forms from other aspects of life are piling on to cause me problems and stress and eat up my time and energy, then I don't even have as much available to devote to this, which is what I really enjoy doing. So it's been a rough few weeks for me. But I will say I am still working and have been all along when I can on both the next regular Not So Civil War episode, which will mostly be about the Vicksburg campaign, in which I'm hoping to get out just a few days after this episode airs, and also still chipping away at the upcoming Patreon bonus Not So Civil War episode about the naval aspects of the war. Now, I'm going to try really hard, but um, we'll see. Life has been kicking me pretty good lately, but I think I might be able to get the Vicksburg episode done by the end of the month, and the bonus naval episode I was really hoping to get done sometime in February, but things have just conspired against me, so it should be out sometime in early March. But after all that bitching and moaning, I do have some gratitude to express because there have been some good things happening. And one of them has been the continued growth of this show, including the growth of those who are willing to help support the work I do here. So big thank yous, Patreon shout outs to the following individuals. John, Mark, Matthew, and I realize I just need a Luke in there to have all the authors of the Gospels, but no such luck, no Luke this time. But continued thanks to David, Joshua, Tim, Philip, Nick, Jeffrey, and Douglas. Thank you all very, very much. It's been among the bright spots in my rough couple of weeks that I've continued to have people signing up to help this show out. And right now I can use all the help I can get, both in terms of financial and in terms of moral support. I also have an Amazon thank you to say, and that is thanks to Jeff, 
for getting me from my Amazon wish list The Good War That Wasn't and Why It Matters by Ted Grimsrud, which looks like a very interesting book for sure. So as always, links in the show notes to both my Amazon wish list and to the DHP's Patreon page. All right, so in this episode, we're talking about the movie Shenandoah, and this movie came out in 1965. So the context is just 20 years after the end of World War II, but also well into the full-on Cold War. And of course, just a year after the Gulf of Tonkin incident and resolution. So just as the American role in the Vietnam conflict was starting to escalate. However, I don't think the movie was intentionally trying to draw any parallels to Vietnam or make any commentary on Vietnam. And the reason I say that is because, number one, in 1965, things were just heating up for America in that conflict, and the numbers of Americans involved and, and getting killed and so on were relatively modest still at that point. And also, I'm pretty sure that in 1965, the public support for the Vietnam War was still overwhelmingly positive. Also, the reason I don't think Shenandoah was trying intentionally to comment on Vietnam was that the writer of Shenandoah later wrote the very much pro-Vietnam War film, The Green Berets, with John Wayne. And that movie came out, I believe, in 1968, at the time when things were getting pretty nasty in Vietnam, and more and more of the public was starting to question the war. So... I don't think it was intentionally any sort of commentary on the Vietnam conflict. And while you'll sometimes hear people saying that there's some sort of a an intentional commentary on the Vietnam War in this conflict, I think that's just the fact that a few years after this movie came out, Shenandoah, more of the American public was turning against the Vietnam War. And I think what happened was some of them kind of retroactively drew their own parallels between some of the themes of Shenandoah and the Vietnam War. Anyway, the film was written by James Lee Barrett, whose other writing credits include, among many other films, such movies as The Greatest Story Ever Told, The Green Berets, and Smokey and the Bandit. Barrett was born in North Carolina, which might explain to some degree his take on the Civil War. While North Carolina was clearly Southern and did secede and join the Confederacy, it often had during the war years a reputation for being one of the less pro-Confederate states in the Confederacy. In other words, one of the states that was butting heads most often with the central government in Richmond and sort of had at least among a fair amount of its kind of mid-level politicians, a bit of a libertarian streak. To some extent, that was also true of Georgia, especially outside of the kind of lowland coastal area. And so to me, that origin of, you know, where Barrett was from somewhat explains why he would have, as I do for somewhat different reasons, a complex view of the Civil War that's basically got problems with both sides of the conflict. And Barrett, who was a U.S. Marine before he became a writer, also, like I said a few minutes ago, wrote the screenplay for the John Wayne movie, The Green Berets, based on Robin Moore's book. And it's interesting to me, because I think it would be fair to say that Shenandoah is 
overall an anti-war movie, while The Green Berets, which came out in 1968, kind of at the high tide of the Vietnam War in many ways, The Green Berets was very pro-America and pro-Saigon in its take on that conflict, didn't ask any of the important questions or raise any of the issues that are raised in Shenandoah. So if you ever watch The Green Berets, I mean, it's, it's not a movie that stands up very well at all, I think. It's very simplistic. There's none of the moral complexity that one would find in a movie like Shenandoah. So perhaps Barrett was just somewhat of a conventional nationalist in a way. And as such, he had an admirable degree of moral complexity when looking at the Civil War, when it's Americans fighting Americans. This is problematic for certain types of nationalists anyway. There's there's the nationalists that look at the Civil War as a glorious thing because Lincoln and the Union Army are forcibly centralizing everything under the control of D.C. And then there's another school of nationalists who, I guess, see the war more as like a regrettable tragedy that Americans turned against each other when they should have been working together. And so perhaps that's more kind of what Barrett's take is. And perhaps he's not commenting on war in general as much as commenting on this war in particular. I don't know. Shenandoah was directed by Andrew V. McLaglen, who has a long list of credits directing films, most of which are kind of action movies, especially westerns and war movies and that kind of thing. So, I mean, this movie is in many ways right up his alley. The great Jimmy Stewart stars as Charlie Anderson, a family farmer in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, who's the patriarch of a large family and a widower. Charlie owns no slaves. Like I said a second ago, he's a widower, and he has a bunch of kids. He has six sons, one daughter, and also one daughter-in-law living at his farm, all of whom help him run his farm. And Charlie Anderson's attitude is he simply wants to stay the hell out of the Civil War and have nothing to do with it and simply take care of his family and run his farm. And this is actually an accurate sort of a thing for the setting, because the Shenandoah Valley actually had a relatively low number of slaves in it, had a lot of these kind of modest-sized family farms, and had people like Charlie Anderson, who were not really gung-ho for the war, mixed in with people who, while they weren't diehard pro-Confederates, kind of just sort of went along with their state once it seceded. And so Charlie Anderson and his situation is actually quite plausible for the Shenandoah Valley. And if you read, for example, the book Stonewall in the Valley, which is set earlier in the war, it deals with Stonewall Jackson's Valley campaign in the spring of 1862. But there's an extensive part at the beginning of the book talking about the history and the culture and economics and geography of the Shenandoah Valley. I mean, it's super, super detailed. And having read Stonewall in the Valley not that long ago, and then rewatched the movie Shenandoah recently for this episode, it's my first time watching that movie in probably at least 10 years, I was struck by how so much of what Stonewall in the Valley had to say about the Shenandoah Valley, when you watch the movie Shenandoah, it's relatively, you know, well depicted. But the film Shenandoah is set in 1864, so, you know, several years after Stonewall's Triumphant Valley campaign, Stonewall's already been dead for about a year by then, and by 1864, in general, the war is going poorly for the Confederacy, and the Shenandoah Valley is one of the places that's bearing some of the brunt of total war. Perhaps not quite to the same degree as Georgia and the Carolinas, with Sherman's army marching through them, but 
Nonetheless, Philip Sheridan in particular did a lot of damage to the valley. The film opens on a battle scene, and one of Jimmy Stewart's sons remarks that the fighting comes closer every day, and Jimmy Stewart, or Charlie Anderson as his character is named, responds, They on our land yet? And when his son says no, Charlie replies, Then it doesn't concern us. And that kind of sums up his attitude. He just wants to be left alone. Later, when one of his sons, who's still a teenager, his youngest son, whose name, or at least nickname, it's not quite clear, is apparently just Boy, and who's played by the actor Philip Alford, when his youngest son, Boy, comes in wearing a rebel military cap that he found in a stream, Charlie isn't happy, but he lets the boy keep the hat. He's kind of an interesting father, where he's kind of stern at times and expresses his opinions, and at the same time, though, he does actually give his children the opportunity to express their own opinions and disagree with them and whatever, so kind of interesting. Charlie then says grace before dinner, saying that the family has worked very hard for the food and has earned it, but that he'll thank God anyway. And it's clear that he's got a rather irreverent view of kind of conventional religion. And it's one of the themes that comes up in the movie several times. During the meal, Charlie's eldest son, Jacob, says that as Virginians, the war should concern them. And Charlie answers by asking the other members of the family what they think about slaves, whether they should be held as slaves or set free, and then makes the point that it's not their family's concern and that they should just try to stay out of it. Later, we see the family going to church, where Charlie clearly isn't 100% comfortable. The pastor reprimands Charlie for being late to church and being somewhat disruptive, and then launches into a sermon, which includes basically preaching a civil religion-type message of duty to the state. After church, a young Confederate officer named Sam is courting Charlie's daughter, Jenny, who's played by actress Rosemary Forsyth, and In addition, in a conversation with the pastor after church, Charlie reveals that he comes to church purely because it was his late wife's last request of him. Later, when some Confederates come by Anderson's farm looking for his sons to try to recruit them into the Confederate army, there's a great conversation where a Confederate officer says something like, Virginia needs all of her sons, and Charlie responds by saying that these are his sons and they don't belong to the state. And that's actually where the audio excerpt that I started the episode with comes from, that conversation. And long story short, the men leave without any of Anderson's sons. Shortly thereafter, a Civil War skirmish happens on the Andersons farm, and Charlie sends some of his sons to go tell the nearest Confederate forces to basically come take care of the dead bodies that are on his farm. That evening, Sam, the Confederate officer who's been courting Jenny, comes to the Anderson house and asks Charlie if he can marry Jenny, and Charlie agrees, perhaps somewhat surprisingly given the fact that he's not in favor of being involved in this war, but I think also he's a fairly benevolent and indulgent father, despite his sometimes crotchety manner. So I think that's his main reason why he gives his assent to the marriage. When a group of men comes to purchase some horses from Charlie on behalf of the government for the war effort, Charlie says they're not for sale. And the guy in charge of the group then says he's authorized to confiscate them if he won't sell them. And then when Boy, Charlie's youngest son, asks what the word confiscate means, Charlie says simply, steal. 
After a little more back and forth with the men, Charlie and his sons actually get into a brawl with them, and the brawl is ended when Charlie's daughter and daughter-in-law come out of the house with rifles and tell the men to get lost. Soon thereafter, Charlie's daughter, Jenny, marries Sam, the well-meaning young Confederate officer, and shortly after the wedding, Sam then gets recalled to serve in the Confederate Army. The next scene after that, we see Anne, Charlie's daughter-in-law, giving birth to what ends up being a daughter. Now, while out hunting with a black friend named Gabriel, who's about his age, boy, still wearing the rebel cap that he'd found, witnesses a skirmish between Union and Confederate troops, and later, while having a drink from a creek, they get caught by Union soldiers, who, of course, think Boy is a rebel soldier, he's wearing the cap and kind of a, a grayish outfit, so they take him prisoner, and one of the Union soldiers in the group is a black Union soldier, and he tells Gabriel that he's now free. Now, Gabriel apparently is a slave of a neighboring farm to the Andersons. Gabriel then goes and, and finds Charlie and tells him what happened, that Boy got grabbed by Union soldiers. And in a conversation, it, it's revealed that because of the war, Gabriel's not really being supervised much, and so he decides to go ahead and leave after having been told by the black Union soldier that he's declared free and having, you know, not much in the way of supervision, he decides to just to just go. Charlie and most of the rest of his sons then set off to find and rescue Boy. Charlie's daughter, Jenny, also comes with them. And they make it to a Union camp where Charlie talks with a colonel who tells him that his men haven't been in the area of the Anderson farm and so wouldn't have Boy among their prisoners anyway. This colonel is apparently a decent guy and has a 16-year-old son as well. And so he directs Charlie to a railroad station where Confederate POWs are being shipped north and gives Charlie a note saying that his son was taken prisoner by mistake and should be released. When Charlie gets to the railroad station, the officer in charge refuses to help Charlie or to allow him to look for his son. Charlie and the rest of his sons then set up a burning roadblock on the track and stop the train. And when the Union troops get out, Charlie and his sons, armed with rifles, make the Union troops leave. They then free the prisoners on the train and do not find Boy among them. But they do find Sam, Charlie's son-in-law and Jenny's husband. After freeing the prisoners, they then proceed to burn the train. Meanwhile, we the viewers catch up with Boy and find him in a POW camp from which he soon escapes along with several other Confederate POWs. They manage to find their way to a Confederate camp, but the next morning that Confederate camp is found and attacked by Union troops. In the battle that follows, which is pretty well done considering it's 1965, though since it's 1965, there's surprisingly little in the way of blood and gore. But anyway, in that battle, Boy is wounded in the leg, but ends up being saved by Gabriel, his black friend, who is now part of the Union Army. Back at the Anderson farm, a group of three kind of raiders or scavengers come through, and it's not clear if they are you know, deserted renegade soldiers or not, or if they're just scumbags who are taking advantage of the disorder and so on um, caused by the war to just sort of go on a, on a pillaging spree. But anyway, these, these three bad guys, they must be ex-soldiers or deserted soldiers because one of them does have a saber, although I guess it's possible he may have scavenged that. But anyway, 
These three no-good Nicks come through, and they kill Charlie's son, James, who had stayed behind, and they then kill Charlie's daughter-in-law, Anne. And it's kind of somewhat implied that they might have raped her. There's like an ominous scene where they're closing in on her, but, you know, then it skips over what actually happened, and we kind of just sort of hear later that they're both dead, James and Anne. Because, you know, it's 1965, so while there's some implication to the intelligent viewer of what likely happened to Anne, it's not implied particularly strongly. But anyway, Charlie and his other sons then decide to give up on looking for Boy, that it's a lost cause, and they head home. And as they're riding home, they startle a young Confederate sentry who's sitting on a on a stump along the road, and he then you know quickly fires his rifle without even really thinking about it and kills one of Charlie's sons, Jacob. Charlie then jumps off his horse and attacks the sentry and starts to strangle him. And then he kind of has an epiphany where he realizes how young this boy is, basically the same age as boy, and he stops strangling him and asks the boy how old he is. The boy says 16, which, if I remember right, is also the same age that boy is supposed to be. And Charlie says he wants him to live. He wants him to live a long time and to have lots of children of his own and live long enough to see at least one of them get killed so that he'll remember this incident. And then Charlie and the rest of his family ride off as the sentry is sitting there in tears. When they return home, they find out what happened to those who had been left behind, but they find that at least on the upside, Anne's orphaned baby is still alive, and that the local doctor had gotten a black woman to act as a nanny for the baby. We see Charlie talking to his dead wife at her grave, and now the graves of all of his dead family members, including those who were recently killed, and he's having a conversation with her. Then church bells ring, and Charlie remembers it's Sunday, and heads off to church late again. At church, Boy suddenly shows up, hobbling in on a crutch. It's kind of a strange movie in a way, because it has a lot of the imagery and themes of a Western, but clearly it's set in the East. It's more a Civil War movie than a Western. It's not really a Western in a lot of ways. And yet sometimes in reviews and in synopses, it's even passed off as a Civil War Western or something like that. But a lot of elements of it are like a classic old-school Western in terms of the cinematography, the soundtrack, etc., in terms of critical reception at the time, from what I can tell, the film seems to have gotten generally positive, but not outstanding reviews, and it seems to have made pretty good money in 1965 dollars. In terms of themes, there's a lot going on in the movie. The themes are somewhat confused, and don't get me wrong, I don't like movies or novels, you know, fictional stories in general, to be didactic. I don't like them to be way too heavy-handed and preachy with whatever message they're trying to get across. I think that's usually terrible. And by the way, I mean that just as much even with movies where I agree with the point or the argument that they're trying to make. If it gets too heavy-handed and didactic, it gets so clunky, and you, you realize that the story and the characters and all that are simply a vehicle to preach a lesson. And I don't like that. I'm, I mean, it's totally fine with movies to have themes. In fact, I think movies and novels and other fictional forms need to have some sort of a theme or a message or an argument in a way in order to really resonate and be something of, of heft. But 
I don't like it to be didactic and clunky, right? Think about the novels of Ayn Rand, for example. To my mind, those are very didactic and clunky. But this movie, I think, is is a little bit too confused at times as to what its point really is. And to me, there's a difference between having some complexity and ambiguity and that sort of thing versus being confused. I think having some complexity and ambiguity can be fine, but being confused is a little bit different. Being confused, sometimes you're not quite sure what the message really is. And I'm not sure how how better to put it, but overall, in a lot of ways, this actually is a fairly libertarian and anti-state sort of a movie, not just an anti-war movie. There have always been anti-war movies, some better than others, but this is one of the relatively few that seems to have somewhat of a libertarian-ish philosophy behind its opposition to war. It's not simply a knee-jerk aversion to the violence and destruction of war, which a lot of anti-war movies basically are just kind of on that level, and some of them are very good. But to me, the anti-war movies that have more punch are the ones that have a little bit more of a coherent philosophy, not just, oh, isn't war tragically lethal and destructive? And in particular, the character of Charlie Anderson has lots and lots of lines that could easily be made into modern anarchist memes, I think. Now, just some of the themes that I saw recurring in the movie, one, of course, is the overall anti-war theme in general, and I think that comes through pretty clearly. Another one that pops up in places that I only mentioned briefly is the whole idea of civil religion, which you get a lot of if you read a book like Upon the Altar of the Nation by Harry Stout, you begin to understand that both the North and the South were developing a very strong civil religion during this war that was going to make people kind of almost immune to asking important questions about things like ends versus means and the costs of war and to what extent victory is even worth certain amounts of costs. And the church scenes and the scenes involving prayer or discussion of God are often very interesting in Shenandoah and certainly unusual for a mainstream American movie to be this kind of complicated on issues of religion and especially for a mainstream American movie from over 50 years ago. Now, related to this, but somewhat distinct from the overall question of civil religion in particular, is that this movie contains a fair amount of kind of jibes at organized religion in general. And Charlie doesn't seem to be an atheist, but clearly he doesn't have that much respect for formal organized religion and the clergy in a lot of ways. And in his prayers, he's often downplaying God's role in things. For example, when saying grace before a meal, he says that he and his family produced all the food by themselves. I think he actually does this more than once. But at one point, I have his, his exact words here in his prayer. He says, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it. We cook the harvest. It wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you, Lord, just the same for the food we're about to eat. Amen. So there's this somewhat playful, but also somewhat denigrating kind of, you know, poking at organized formal religion. But it's not anything vicious. It's not anything like that. I mean, probably they couldn't have done something really really hard on organized religion and gotten it 
you know, widespread distribution in 1965, I would imagine. But nonetheless, it's certainly, you know, a little bit kind of making fun of things. Another thing that comes up very strongly at several points in the movie is the idea of private property. And Charlie repeatedly stresses that he cares about his farm because it's his and that he cares about his family because they're, they're his family. Um, you know, he, he doesn't argue that he owns his family in, in that sense. He, he's actually a somewhat libertarianish parent in a way, it seems, but you know, they're, they're his family. And he repeatedly stresses that he just wants to be left alone to run his farm and to take care of his family. And he explicitly makes these points that are propertarian in, in flavor. And another theme that comes up repeatedly that I picked up on very strongly was pointing out how government tends to be corrupt and criminal and does things that if normal people did them would be considered crime. So there's the part where the guy's coming on behalf of the Confederate government to take the horses, say, confiscate. And when Boy asks Charlie what that means, Charlie says, steal. And after the brawl that follows that conversation, where the men were trying to force Charlie to sell his horses and he and his sons fight with the guys, Charlie then, as the the group of men are leaving, Charlie quips to one of his sons something to the effect of, well, that guy used to be a thief before the war, and now he gets paid to do it which is interesting. They never say anywhere in the movie explicitly taxation is theft, but a few times they pretty much make that point in regard to things like conscription of men and conscription of supplies. So overall, my evaluation of the movie Shenandoah is, while I like certain things about the film, overall, as a film, I'd give it a C plus B minus sort of a grade. Say, if I were grading it out of four stars potential, I'd give it three. If I were grading it out of five stars potential, I'd probably give it four out of five. Like most movies made before the 1970s, and even many movies made after then, Shenandoah is somewhat unrealistic or unnatural to today's viewers' eyes in terms of how it's filmed and edited, etc., the acting and so forth. It's got that old-school Hollywood vibe that people who went to film school could probably explain in more specific kind of technical terminology than I can, but you kind of know it when you see it, you know, where the, the acting is, um, with a few exceptions, the acting is kind of wooden, um, the editing and cinematography in a lot of places is very kind of static and boring. A lot of things, some things are done very realistically, but a lot of other things are not. There's a fair amount of kind of like sappiness to some of the scenes and dialogue, but definitely by far the best thing about the movie is Jimmy Stewart himself and his portrayal of the character, Charlie Anderson. Jimmy Stewart is by a large margin, the best actor in the film. A lot of the other characters, you know, his family members and so on are pretty flat and or corny. And really only the union Colonel who tried to help Charlie find his son seems to be something like a three dimensional character. And that colonel, by the way, was played by the actor George Kennedy, who is one of these character actors who, if you Google him, you'll immediately go, oh, that guy. And George Kennedy, like Jimmy Stewart, was actually like a real actor. George Kennedy, by the way, even won an Oscar for supporting actor for his role in the film Cool Hand Luke just a few years after he was in Shenandoah. And I mean, he's got too many other film credits to list here. But anyway, in addition to... 
Jimmy Stewart's acting and the brief appearance of George Kennedy. I would also say the scenery of the movie is largely good. It looks like a fair amount of the film was shot on location, although there are also some scenes where it's clearly a soundstage. And I would also say that some of the battle scenes were pretty well done, especially considering the time period. And the only downside is because of the kind of film standards of the time, there's there's a distinct shortage of realistic blood and that sort of thing. I mean, there's people getting shot, but like surprisingly little in the way of of blood and gore. And I'm not someone who like is looking to get off on blood and gore. Rather, I think it's an important part of if you're going to make a movie with anti-war themes and try to illustrate the downside of of war, that it's a useful thing to not try to cover up the real costs and the real pain and aftermath of battles and that sort of thing. And I think this movie is trying to depict that stuff as much as it can within what was kind of permissible in a mainstream movie at that time. The soundtrack, I have to say, is generic and sappy. It's kind of typical of like a Western movie of that time period. And overall, the story is kind of weird in a way. There's there's conflict, but there's not much in the way of character development. Charlie and his family are basically the same characters at the end that they were at the beginning. And while Charlie is eventually reunited with Boy, his getting reunited with him is... It's got pretty much nothing to do with Charlie's actions that he took in trying to find him. In other words, Boy would have come home on his own had Charlie never even gone to look for him. I guess the only thing that we can say that's sort of like Charlie doing something to resolve a conflict internally is that when the sentry shoots his own son, Charlie ultimately chooses not to kill the sentry. And it is kind of interesting in a movie that's a war movie and clearly also has some amount of parallels to a Western in a lot of ways that the main protagonist, Charlie Anderson, actually doesn't kill anyone during the entire film. And in a way, I find that kind of refreshing that the person who's the the hero, the protagonist is not just that because he's good at slaughtering people, but I just feel like there could have been more in the way of sort of conventional story and resolution and hero's journey type stuff to add a bit more depth and a bit more punch to the film. The story in some ways is almost just like the book of Job in that it's just a lot of shit that happens to an, an unfortunate person. But of course, there's a more upbeat ending here than the book of Job, because here, after he does lose several family members, nonetheless, Charlie does at least get his youngest son back alive. Now, all that said, my criticisms of the movie and so on, I still think it's worth watching if you're someone who's into older movies and if you haven't seen this movie. And I do give the movie credit for having a more morally problematic and complex view of war in general and the Civil War in particular than have a lot of other movies on the topic, particularly those made before the 70s. In a lot of ways, the attitude of Charlie Anderson towards the Civil War is my own attitude retroactively towards it, which is, I don't really think either side are the good guys. And I've got to say that the film certainly does deserve a lot of credit for being one of the very few American movies you can think of in the mid-20th century, made in the mid-20th century, that hits on themes of self-ownership rather explicitly. Normally, I'm not much of a fan of movie remakes, but I really think it would have been awesome 
If Shenandoah would have been remade, directed by and starring as Charlie Anderson, Clint Eastwood, back in, say, the 1990s, early 2000s, before Clint Eastwood went into his talking to empty chairs and making American Sniper sort of jumping the shark phase of his career, but back when he was making very good movies. And in particular, I'm thinking of Unforgiven, which is my favorite Western and one of my favorite movies of all time. Wouldn't it have been great if Shenandoah was remade with a much darker and more explicitly realistic and cynical sort of a take, with Clint Eastwood directing and starring as Charlie Anderson in a similar vein to his portrayal of, what was the guy's name, his his character in Unforgiven? I think it was William Money. Imagine Shenandoah done that way. I think that would have been really cool. And with that, I'll close things out by leaving you with some words of wisdom from Charlie Anderson. This is what he says when he's speaking to the grave of his wife near the end of the movie. There's not much I can tell you about this war. It's like all wars, I guess. The undertakers are winning. And the politicians who talk about the glory of it. And the old men who talk about the need of it. And the soldiers, well, they just want to go home. what you heard in this podcast there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist to improve and grow one is simply to spread the word about the dangerous history podcast in any way you can social media online discussion boards word of mouth whatever but to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as itunes or stitcher and you can help the show financially several different ways one of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. 
You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330. Or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today.